Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. play a lot of ACDC on this show and let's keep it that way but this was this is good this is we're talking about fingers today so it's very appropriate I just want to say that I mean when you're doing a show like this a show about fingers where as you're preparing for the show your just mind is just you know roving around the landscape of your decades of life just thinking about all the ways that fingers have played a role in your life many of which are probably less best left to the imagination but I found myself thinking of this 1972 Monday night football game, of all things. And it was a blowout. The Houston Oilers were losing really, really badly to somebody. I can't remember who. And you know how they do this thing, particularly like in the end stages of a game like that, where the cameras will pan the crowd. And so they pan the crowd, and they focus on this incredibly bored and depressed-looking fan who's just sitting there slumped in his seat with his eyes kind of almost half-closed. And and so Howard Cosell and Don Meredith uh, are they're talking and talking about how that's how you feel at, in a game like this. And suddenly the guy, who apparently was a little bit more aware than he seemed, flips the bird at the camera. And and this is 1972 where that wasn't like just being done all the time. Uh, and so they, the announcers just laughed and. And eventually Meredith said, yep, they're number one in the nation or <laughs> something like that. So it's another reason to love Don Meredith as well. Yep, we're number one. So we're going to talk about fingers today. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit later in the show about what happens in the world uh, of blind users of particularly of sort of tablet style, touchscreen style, internet connected devices. Like, like can can Braille appear there in in a way that's useful to the Braille reader? We're also going to explore the, the mystery at the end of why so many animated cartoon characters have only four fingers or three fingers and one thumb, depending on how we define things, which is one of the things we're going to attempt to do here in the first segment. Uh, we are going to be talking about fingers and thumbs and pointing and gestures with Kenzie Cooper Ryder, a cognitive scientist, writer, and host of the podcast Many Minds. Welcome to our conversation. Great to be here. So one of the interesting things about fingers, as I think you yourself have pointed out, is, and sorry for saying pointed, but uh, <laughs> you you have uh, elucidated, is that we've got like more of them than we have of most body parts, which right away means we need a nomenclature, right? We don't have to think of a name for each kidney except left and right. But you get into fingers and they all have to kind of have names. This is something that you've written about, something that you've researched. And those names vary across cultures, right? That's right. They do. And and actually, there's some striking similarities as well. We humans seem to have converged on similar ways for picking out specific fingers. So it's, it's kind of a fascinating combination, both of variation and these these patterns you see across cultures. 
So, you know, actually, I, I, you can weigh in ideally dispositively on, on one of the questions that comes up a lot, which is, do we have four fingers and a thumb or do we have five fingers, one of which <laughs> happens to be a thumb? Um, so so where are you? And this seems a, a little bit different from culture to culture, too. I mean, it seems pretty clear uh, in, in English anyway that we talk about fingers and a thumb. It's yeah, it's it's true. So this is sort of a, I guess you might call it a metaphysical question, if you like. Um, that I, to be honest, I don't really have a lot of uh, a lot of stake in. But yeah, I, it's true. In English, it kind of goes both ways, right? I mean, like no one's going to argue with you if you say you have five fingers. No one's going to argue with you if you say you have four fingers and a thumb. So we can kind of do it both ways. I would say that English speakers are a little bit amb- ambivalent on this metaphysical issue. Yeah, Kinsey, have you ever been on social media? Because people will argue with you about anything. <laughs> anything. It's true. It's true. Yeah. So, I, clearly, I need to come up with a, a very firm stance on this right. and, and uh, scream it from the rooftops. Right. For In Icelandic and Russian, for example, the thumb is the big finger, you know, but mm-hmm. it's not so clear in our language. Talk a little bit more about that nomenclature. In other words, index finger um, is basically a reference to pointing, right? Right. Yeah. And, and in a lot of cultures, we seem to think that the most distinctive thing about the index finger is that it is used to point. But, you know, you do find um, other solutions to this problem of how are you going to, you know, identify the index finger. Um, one of my favorites is that it's sometimes referred to for its use to kind of like swipe up sauces and stews. So pot liquor is one is one other name you get for the index finger. Um, a lot of a lot of cultures seem to to note that the index finger is very kind of like agile and able among the fingers. You know, it's kind of strong and and uh, very active. So yeah, it's um, that's that's one of the fingers that get that attracts the most names for sure. <laughs> so let's well, let's quickly just go give us a little cooks sure. to cooks tour of the remaining three. Okay, sure. So yeah, middle finger is usually picked out either for its position, i.e. like in the middle of the hand, or because it's the tallest finger. One of my favorite um, names for this finger is just kind of this image that comes from uh, one of the Turkic languages. I forget which language specifically, but it's the middle poplar, right? So it's like this image of a a tree in a grove of trees um, that sort of stands out. the ring finger is kind of interesting because, you know, it's it's attracted a couple different names, but actually one of the most common ones, and you see this in Europe, you see this in China, you see this in different parts of the world, it's actually known as the nameless finger. So it's kind of paradoxically named for its lack of a name. <laughs> and I think, I, I don't, you know, I can't say this definitively, but my guess is that just refers to the fact that it's kind of the also ran of the finger family, you know, it's like, there's not a whole lot going for it. We don't really use it for much. Um, Then the little finger is often picked out, you know, the pinky finger, as we call it, is often picked out for being small, as you might guess. Um, There's some fun ones that refer to it as kind of, you know, like the, the baby of the family or the, the little daughter or something like that. One of the names though, that still survives in a couple um, European languages is this idea that, this is the ear finger and it gets that name because it is of course the finger that is best suited for excavating wax from your ear canal so that was the uh, that was the name in latin and i think it still survives in french and a couple other languages All right we 
Uh, don't don't at public radio. We don't recommend that people excavate wax <laughs> with their pinkies. Uh, you should do it in a more medically responsible way. But we also know you're going to do it anyway, no matter what we say. So um, so yeah, we should we need to talk about pointing. Pointing is a, a major subject of interest to you, uh, and. Maybe we should sort of begin with the idea of pointing, which, first of all, we take for granted here in the United States that you can legitimately point point at something, uh, often to benefit another person. Uh, you know, the Washington Monument, it's over that way. Uh, but apparently that isn't really exactly a universal attitude about pointing. Yeah, well, you know, it's 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 interesting because pointing does seem to be a universal kind of communicative act. Every culture seems to have figured out ways that we need to draw people's attention to stuff in face in 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 space. Um, what differs across cultures is like which method of doing this is the most preferred, preferred which method is um, acceptable, socially acceptable, and so on. So. You know, in the U.S., in a lot of European contexts, we sort of take for granted that, well, obviously, um, you know, protruding your index finger is the way to point. It's the kind of classic way to do it. In other cultures, including cultures that I've studied, they still use the index finger, but um, they also sometimes point with their face. And so this is actually something you see in a lot of cultures around the world, that there's often a conventional way of pointing not with your hands at all, but just with your face. So usually what you're doing is you're you're looking in a certain direction, you know, you're looking at whatever it is you're trying to draw attention to, while also doing something with your face that kind of signals, hey, I'm trying to get you to look over there, right? So that could be protruding your lips, creating kind of a, a pucker or a funnel with your lips. It could be um, scrunching your nose together, kind of scrunching your face together. That's a form of pointing that with my collaborators, we've actually uh, studied a bit in Papua New Guinea. And, you know, there, again, it's not like that's the only way they point. So they do they do also point with their fingers in the way that um, many Westerners do. But, you know, they've got a much more varied and in some sense, much more kind of dynamic and interesting repertoire of different ways it's acceptable to point to things. Right. And I think, you know, even in our culture, there is maybe it's sort of a little bit antiquated at this point, dating back to Emily Post or something, but there was sort of a time when you hear, don't point, it's rude. Uh, right. and, and I think that's in particularly, obviously, you know, some kind of jacuzzi pointing at another person is an aggressive act. Uh, but there was, there has been kind of this embedded idea that, that maybe one doesn't do that in polite society because it's, it, it, I don't know, it's too digitally aggressive or something. Yeah, I've actually been really interested in exactly that issue. It's like, why do we seem to have this intuition that there's something aggressive about pointing? Because you're right, you do you do see it. We don't have rigid taboos, right? You're not going to get a citation for pointing to someone at Disney World or something like that. But um, you know, we do have this general sense that eh, this is probably not uh, not not something you want to just go around doing casually. And you know, when I was studying pointing as a graduate student, I definitely had. Um, Older relatives, especially, sort of say to me, like, what, 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 why would you study pointing? You're not allowed to, that's not something you're allowed to, it's not appropriate to do. What, what is there to even study? No one does that. You don't go around doing that. But of course, um, it doesn't operate at that level in our culture, right? We do go around pointing all the time. In other places, they do have more rigid taboos around different kinds of pointing. And, and that's some really interesting terrain we could go into if you'd like. Yeah, well, I mean, maybe we can just circle back to that question. Although one thing that we have to talk about is this whole pointing at rainbows uh, mm. issue, which I frankly was not a, un, I was unaware of. 
I, I, my guess is I probably have pointed at rainbows, uh, perhaps in situations where it was unwise of me to do so. So tell us about that. Yeah, so this is a phenomenon that I also was not aware of until uh, a couple of years ago. Um, there seems to be this taboo on pointing to rainbows with your index finger in a number of cultures. So um, this was first studied in Southeast Asia, uh, in Indonesia, by this linguist named Robert Blust, um, who was there doing field work in the, uh, in the 1980s. And he sort of noticed, oh, they, they, there's different parts of Indonesia where people seem to think you can't point to rainbows um, with your index finger, that it's bad, that something's going to happen to your finger, it's going to get bent or it's going to fall off or it's going to develop warts or something like that. So he noticed this kind of in this really restricted region, but then he started looking around at other sources and other places and soon discovered that, no, in fact, this appears to be a globally distributed taboo. This seems to be found all over the place. It's found in native North America. It's found in Africa. It's found in, uh, in, in older generations, it was found in Europe proper. And yeah, so, so there's this, just this general idea that humans have come up with time and time again, that you really shouldn't stick your finger out at a rainbow. And if you do, something bad is going to happen to that finger. Um, if you want to avoid that fate, if you want to, you know, point to her if you want to indicate a rainbow with impunity you can do it but you just can't use your index finger you can maybe protrude your thumb you can do it with your lips you can kind of you know just cast your gaze at it you can make a fist and point that way but something about that index finger is just a little too transgressive so yeah that's the that's the basic that's the basic phenomenon and exactly why this is you know is is um a little bit up for debate although it seems to basically be this general notion that index finger pointing is aggressive and that you don't want to direct it at things that deserve respect, whether those are rainbows or elders in the community or, um, you know, other celestial phenomena that have a sort of spiritual, uh, spiritual nature to them. So I think if you ask the average person, how many gestures do you typically use that involve your fingers? They'd probably maybe say, pointing and I don't know, maybe the AOK sign or something like that. Mm -hmm. But the truth is we use a lot of them. I was even looking at the at the uh, emo emojis on my iPhone and there are at least 20 just hand emojis that show fingers doing various things of different configurations, some of which are inscrutable to me. I don't know what they mean. <laughs> but, but, but there is a way in which, in, in terms of making order out of chaos, we do, we use our fingers a, a lot uh, to indicate, uh, I think as you pointed out, just like a, a small distance. We'll just hold our, our index finger and our thumb a little bit apart. Uh, the, mm -hmm. Now we often hear what's called the chef's kiss, you know, which is moi, but usually the fingers are kind of up by the mouth and then they kind of explode blowed away from the mouth. Moi! Uh, so there is sort of a, probably without even thinking about it, we're communicating with our fingers more than we are, we would know. Most definitely. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, this is one of the reasons I got interested in gestures. Like if you just go to a, a coffee shop or, you know, someplace where people are gathering and you sit kind of far enough away that you can't hear what they're saying, because you don't actually want to listen in. You just want to watch their, their hands. If you do that, you'll quickly realize something that we don't really attend to um, in, in, in everyday life, which is that people are just moving their hands, moving their fingers all the time while they're talking. I mean, it's just like a constant background, um, a sort of background, you know, activity that's going along with their speaking. So, you know, it's a little hard to enumerate like, okay, how many different gestures people are using because, you know, um, 
it's hard to say what where one gesture stops and another begins. There are these ones that are really conventional, like you mentioned the AOK or you know um, the thumbs up, those sorts of things. Obviously, the bird, as you mentioned in the intro. So those are like kind of really kind of fossilized conventional ones. But then, you know, we're, we're so innovative. We're constantly moving our hands in sort of interesting ways, idiosyncratic ways, ways that spontaneously and sort of imaginatively illustrate different aspects of what we're describing. And actually those are, those are kind of the gestures that I am personally most drawn to. I love, I love looking at gesture as this place where people are just, where the human mind is just kind of at work and creative and coming up with um, images and, and uh, you know, different, different sort of metaphors and ways of illustrating what they're thinking about, talking about. I think there's also, and I think it's been ramped up by the kind of the digiverse, uh, but there's kind of this sense that other people are using uh, gestures and finger positions and stuff like that that mean things that we don't know. And a lot of times mm-hmm. these turn out to be false. That person is sitting at the Brett Kavanaugh hearings uh, flashing a white power symbol. Uh, Hillary mm-hmm. Clinton is holding up her ring finger and her index finger with the middle fingers down. That's a satanic symbol. <laughs> there's there's this constant sort yeah. of analysis, the idea that there is this sort of arcane finger, you know, position system uh, of gang signs and secret uh, messages among cabals. Uh, but that's also, that's, a, that's somewhat intermingled with some real stuff. On TikTok now, there are actual sort of finger signs, one of which apparently means I'm in danger. I'm in maybe in danger of domestic abuse on at least one occasion. A person out there in the real world actually used that to indicate that she was in danger. Uh, so there's sort of a way in which there's like a, a lot of legend growing up uh, around our fingers and the signs we can make. It's true. Yeah, definitely. I mean, one of the, the most interesting things about gestures in general is that they have this kind of under the radar quality, right? It's like, they're not, they're not always as in your face as words would be. So as a result of that, people can sometimes use them to, to sort of do these sort of more subtle signals, right? Um, and this really just gets at the question that that has kind of <laughs> driven me to study gestures for you know a decade or more now, is this question of why do we gesture, right? It's like, is is there something inadequate about words? When is a gesture called for as opposed to a word? Like we t- we t- talk about we, language and speech as though it's um, so special and so powerful, and indeed it is. But then there's this other side of human communication that we don't attend to as much. That's always there in all cultures, starting from a very young age. And it has to do with making these, these different hand signals. And why are we doing that? You know, what, what, what purpose is it serving? And, and I think, um, yeah, part of it is this kind of discrete aspect to gestures um, that you mentioned, that, that, which allows people to kind of use them uh, in these situations where they don't want the gesture, we do, they don't want to be as in your face as a word, but it also, paves the way for these kind of <laughs> these misinterpretations, right? Oh, so-and-so when he was scratching his chin was really uh, <laughs> flipping the bird, you know, that sort of thing. Um, because it does, we sort of know that gesture has this, this under the radar quality. You know, but even the bird, it's interesting. I was thinking about this a lot today because, you know, one thing that we have is a kind of record 
dating back even decades to a, maybe a sl- somewhat more decorous time of human behavior, a very powerful people flipping the bird. Nelson Rockefeller, there's a fa- fa- while he's vice president in the United States, there's a picture of him giving the mm. finger to some protesters. Pierre Trudeau uh, in 1982 uh, flipped the bird. I think he was in a private train car. He flipped the bird at some protesters and then pulled down the shade. There's a little bit of video of W while he's president uh, doing kind of a camera check and getting annoyed at Karen Hughes or something and, and flipping the bird right at the camera, but then kind of smiling engagingly. And I'm wondering if one thing that gestures can do in a way that you, you were kind of saying before is, it, you know, it wouldn't, those people couldn't, you know, verb, use words. They couldn't say, go F yourself. You know, you can't be the vice president of the United States, even now, I don't think, and tell a bunch mm. of protesters to go F themselves. But you could kind of do something like the bird and it's, it's a little bit less aggressive, maybe, or or it's funny, or there's something about it that sort of puts it in a different category. Yeah, no, I totally, I totally agree. It's like you're you're sort of less accountable for your gestures than you would be for your words. They're somehow less <laughs> on record, you know what I mean, than than your words. So yeah, I, I agree. It's got it's it's it fills this particular niche in human communication that just always fascinates me. You know, the other thing that's very interesting, and you've looked at this too, is, I mean, another thing that we use our fingers for are, are is calculation and, and memory. Mm. I have to admit that if I have to have figure out how many months have elapsed since November fourth or something, I I will. I'm 67 years old. I will still use my <laughs> fingers to figure out how many months have elapsed. But apparently, that's not necessarily a bad thing. And at times in history, it's been a very prevalent and useful thing. Yeah, definitely. I mean, counting on your fingers is a behavior that, you know, we can't even trace the origins of because it goes back so, so far. But um, we can guess that, you know, counting finger counting was actually right there at the very invention of our number systems. And we can sort of guess this for a couple of reasons. I mean, one reason is just like when you look across the number systems, around the world, you see that most of them, uh, I forget exactly the figure, something like 75%, maybe 80% of the number systems you find are based on, you know, fives, tens, maybe twenties, if you throw in, throw in the toes. And that, you know, that, that obviously, I mean, not obviously, but that very plausibly is connected to the fact that that's how many digits we have. And if you actually look deeper at those number systems, you also see that the words themselves in so many languages, the number words themselves have a very clear reference to the hands, right? Um, the number for five in so many languages is hand. In uh, in languages such as the one I've worked on in Papua New Guinea, to say six, you would say something like, um, from the other hand, take one. To say mm-hmm. seven, from the other hand, take two. So this kind of finger counting is not it's it's true that we still use it, as you mentioned, as kind of a, a little crutch or a little aid when we need a little um, external support for our calculation. But I think, honestly, you can make a strong case that it goes back to the very origins of numbers and counting. So there's so much more that we could. I, I, now I sort of wonder about the people who are polydactylic, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, who have that sixth finger. You know, what do they do in these five-digit uh, uh, calculation systems? I just yeah. I just ignore one of the fingers, or most people have it removed, and that's going to kind of um, lead us to to the next segment we're going to get into. Uh, and first of all, I want to thank uh, uh, very much thank Kenzie Cooperider, a cognitive scientist, writer, and the host of the podcast Many Minds, in which it's a great podcast, by the way, all kinds of interesting topics. Uh, there. It's going to be part of my universe for a while. Uh, but it's been great to talk to you. 
Thanks so much, Colin. Yeah, this was fun. So this also kind of gets into the whole question of losing fingers. So first of all, I want to mention the kind of the Hall of Famer of this whole topic is a blues musician named Hound Dog Taylor, who was born polydactylic. He had six fingers. And then in, he got drunk and cut one of them off. So he sort of belongs to both clubs, uh, people who've lost a finger and people who had too many to begin with. But, you know, most people know, uh, even like great musicians like Jerry Garcia, Django Reinhardt, uh, Dr. John, um, uh, missing fingers, missing fingers that they ordinarily would be using to play their instruments. Uh, Gemma Arterton, the uh, former Bond girl, if you still are allowed to call Bond girls Bond girls, uh, had six fingers, had one of them removed. So, um, you know, it's just that's like a, a whole other topic, the whole idea of having a finger and losing it. Uh, I have to quickly mention, just to discuss you before we go to the essay, that um, maybe the most litigated uh, version of that uh, is the 2005 incident in which a woman claimed to find a human finger in her chili at Wendy's uh, somewhere in the Bay Area in California. Uh, and uh, she it was eventually revealed because she sued them for the pain and distress of having gotten finger chili. Uh, and it turns out that, that her husband had actually bought a severed finger from a co-worker for her to use in this ruse. So... You know, you can't even trust people around something like that. Meanwhile, uh, one of our producers, Jonathan McPants, has been thinking about related topics, not exactly that topic. And here's where he wound up. When we first started talking about doing a show about fingers, I thought of Roald Dahl. You probably know Dahl as the guy behind Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and Matilda and James and the Giant Peach. But he didn't just write kids books. Probably my all-time favorite episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents is based on a doll short story, Lamb to the Slaughter. Barbara Belgetti's bludgeons her husband to death with a frozen leg of lamb and, spoiler alert, roasts and feeds the murder weapon to the cops investigating it. piece of meat I've had in She said to finish it, didn't she, Jack? She did. Basically all of Doll's adult fiction is kind of like this, and Fingers got me thinking about a different short story that was made into a different Alfred Hitchcock Presents. In Man from the South, from 1960, an older Peter Lorre plays Carlos, ostensibly a man from South America, who meets a young gambler played by Steve McQueen. They're in a bar, McQueen lights Lorre's cigarette, and before you know it... It's a nice big bet I had in mind for you, a bet you could remember all your life. We've got ourselves a barroom proposition. Lorre's Carlos puts up his new convertible, and the bet revolves around McQueen's cigarette lighter. Now, the bet is really very simple. If you can make this celebrated lighter of yours work for you ten times without missing, ten times in succession, mind you, then the car is yours. Now, the gambler doesn't think he can match that sort of a stake. Do I put up my spare set of pajamas? But Carlos has an answer for that at the ready. Well, I'm thinking of some small thing that you could afford to give away. And, and if you lose, why well, you won't have to feel so bad, such as, such as the little thing on your left hand. Oh. My what? Okay. Is that so strange? He wins, he takes the car, I win, I take his finger. Is that so strange? Right. Is that so strange? What do you mean, if I lose, you take the finger? How else? I chopped it off. After some hemming and hawing, McQueen takes the bet. Most of the rest of the story is the bet playing out in the ever-escalating tension of a cigarette lighter and a pinky finger pitted against fate. I think it's the human condition that sometimes the anticipation of something bad happening can be just as bad, if not worse, than the bad things 
happening, kind of a sick, terrible part of our existence. Catherine Ormsby co-hosts Good Evening, an Alfred Hitchcock Presents podcast. Because you do know that if that lighter doesn't light, his finger is going to get chopped off. The proposition does feel so absurd, but at the same time, it's just low stakes enough that it feels believable. We'll come back to how low the stakes are, or aren't. I think in a story like Man from the South, the stakes are quite real. David L. Ulan is a professor of the practice of English at the University of Southern California. Within a very narrow span of pages, it's a short story, there is an enormous amount going on, and there's an enormous amount going on underneath the surface of the narrative. I'm pretty sure Man from the South is Roald Dahl's most adapted work. It's been made into movies and TV episodes and radio plays at least a dozen times. Quentin Tarantino made a version of it. American Dad did a little spoof of it. It's the simplicity of the story. It's the self-contained nature of the story. It's the sense that the stakes appear to be low, but in fact are extremely high. That's the theory I've come to, that there's this particular plausible horror to this whole idea. When Peter Lorre or Quentin Tarantino or whoever, when the man from the South suggests betting a pinky finger, I mean, it's maybe the least important appendage on the human body, right? I think we all think, just for a second, you know, I might take that bet. The question is, what are you willing to give up? But I, I think you're absolutely right. The kind of the smallness of it. You know, the pinky seems like perhaps the most vestigial possible appendage that you have. I think if it were a certain amount of money that would set me up forever, I'd be willing to part with a pinky finger. In Hitchcock, it's just a convertible. That's not enough for me. But it seems like it was enough for Steve McQueen. <laughs> it occurred to me, though, that maybe not all of us would take a bet like that. No, I would definitely wouldn't make a bet like that. Melissa Jurgen is a board-certified hand therapist at Connecticut Orthopedics. I mean, any finger loss is awful. Your pinky is a very, very, very important part of your hand. You need it for gripping, squeezing. There's an argument that your little finger isn't even the least important finger. Say nothing about the least important appendage. It gives you function in your environment. It gives you the power in your environment to lift and carry things. To perform activities of daily living, you know, cooking, cleaning, dressing, washing, bathing, things like that. Because usually an amputation is a mutilating injury. It's usually, it's, it's devastating to a patient. And the rehab behind it, I don't think people realize how extensive it can be. But yeah, it's, it's a huge injury. I guess, as they say, kids, don't try this at home. You mind keeping count? Let me know how many times I light this thing. Yeah, sure, I'll do that. One. For The Colin McEnroe Show, I'm Jonathan McNichol. Two. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. 
So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed. And in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. All right, we are moving on to a whole other area here of the world of fingers. To help us with that is Sheila O'Moran, a professor at the University of Michigan studying sound and touch and the ways in which they interact. She's also the co-founder of New Haptics, a company designing and building a full-page tactile display that uses... Well, I'm kind of, if I see the rest of it, I'm kind of spoiling the plot here a little bit. Maybe I should uh, hold back. Uh, and uh, so, first of all, welcome to our conversation, our conversation, Sheila O'Moran. Thank you very much. So, we're going to be talking about Braille. Most people don't know how to read Braille. I don't know how to read Braille. So, maybe we need, before we start talking about the technological problems uh, on, on touchscreens and things like that, just in ordinary printed page situations, what goes on with the fingers and the skin of the fingers when a person is reading Braille? So that's very interesting, actually, because people think that because the dots on a page stick up from the page, that it's actually the actual just the feel of the dots that that's important. But it's the um, sensation that you get when you slide your finger across the dots as opposed to pushing into the dots that seems to be key. It's You can almost think of it, you know, the way your eyes continually move, even though you're not aware of it. Um, they continually stimulate your retina. And in the same way, when your finger slides across Braille, it's that continuous stimulation that's important, not just the, the fact that the dots are there. Right. So that brings us to a little bit more to the to, to the modern problem. And maybe before we even get into that, the, you know, the word haptics comes up a lot these days. It's, a, I think, a relatively, I don't know if it's a new coinage, but it's a, in much more frequent use these days. Uh, but explain what that word means. So haptics or hapteste comes from the Greek word, which means to touch. And it's actually a combination of two different systems in your body. One is the one that you most commonly think of for touch, which is your tactile system. So when you put your finger down on something and you rub the, the thing, what happens to your skin in that, in that sensation? But the second part of haptics is what we call proprioception, which is our ability to, to sense the movement of our own body. So when you move your arms or your feet, or um, your body can kind of track what's going on. It feels how your own limbs are moving with re uh, relative to the rest of the body. And so the haptic sense is typically the combination of both of those. But haptic feedback, as we hear about it in virtual reality and stuff, tends to primarily be um, vibration feedback like you would have on your phone or some kind of um, pushback from a gaming device, whereas tactile feedback is separate. It's more like what we think about when we think of Braille displays. So a slight distinction between what you know psychologists would think of as haptics and then what we think of it in terms of VR and things like that. So now that we've sort of explained what the fingers and skin are doing uh, when they read Braille and what haptics are, we can put them together into the question that you've been exploring, sometimes referred to as the holy Braille. Uh, explain what this is. So um, one of the challenges, so if you've ever seen a standard page of Braille, it's typically... Uh, 40 characters wide by, I don't know, 25 lines um, long. And if you could count up those dots, it's it's a lot of dots. 
And um, in terms of being able to make dots that can be controlled by a computer, so what we call refreshable Braille, it's been very hard to make a whole page. Um, people have been able to do a line for a long time. And that's because the mechanism that moves the dot up and down for a full page display needs to fit under the dot. And that's actually quite a tough engineering challenge. And there are a number of people attacking it. Um, and we're just sort of one in that, in that uh, group. But one of the keys seems to be maybe the ability to create a screen in which bubbles uh, play a role. Can you put a little bit more flesh on that idea? So in our case, what we're doing is um, instead of using a mechanism like a little motor, if you think of it, to move a dot up and down, what we're doing is we're using air or fluid and we create them, we fill or, um, you know, fill a bubble and that bubble in turn pushes a dot up and down. So you don't actually feel the bubble. You feel the dot that's pushed up as a result of the fact that the bubble has filled with air or fluid. And that's nice because it means you don't need to deal with mechanisms in the same way as you would for um, a, a display that might use a motor or something. So it does a number of things. It gets rid of a lot of electronic components out of the system. And it also turns out it makes it um, somewhat easier, although I would say it's not that straightforward, but it's, it does make it easier to manufacture. I'm, yeah, obviously the sort of scalability is is an important question here too. You coming mm-hmm. up with a device that cost eighteen thousand dollars is probably not going to solve the problem. Um, so, um, you know, it's uh, one thing that I hadn't really thought very much about at all is that obviously you want to be able to uh, read Braille on on a screen, uh, but you also at times want to be able to write. You want to be able to make notes. Uh, you sing in, in a choir where the choir director occasionally will say, you know, sing that note on, uh, on you know, in the 18th bar a little bit different. Um, and that's a very difficult thing to do as well, correct? Yeah. So <clears throat> there are two things. I mean, the standard way of making Braille characters is to use what we call a corded keyboard. So it, it's, a, it, it's a keyboard that has six dots uh, and they correspond, or six keys, sorry, and they correspond to the six dots in a standard Braille cell, um, which we haven't really talked about, but every Braille cell has six dots and the letters and characters are made up of combinations of those six dots. So in order to make those six dots, you press combinations of these keys and and they punch holes in paper in the the traditional way of making Braille. Um, In electronic Braille, you do, you're right, you absolutely want to be able to do the same thing. And so typically these devices will have some kind of Braille input keyboard like that. But then you have to figure out where you're going to put the the uh, character that you want to put. You can't just, you know, you have to kind of like move a mouse pointer effectively. And that's one really interesting difference between using a regular thing like a, you know, mouse to using um, any kind of Braille device. Um, uh, if you think about looking at a screen when you're moving a mouse around, what you're doing is you're searching through the whole screen to find this one little tiny pointer. And you can do it very quickly visually, but that's actually a hard job to do when you're doing using touch. You have to search the whole tactile area to find the thing. So typically in Braille devices, what you do is the opposite. You go to where you want to be, you press on the display and the mouse comes to you. And so that makes the whole thing much more efficient and it means you have no searching problem. And so in, in a device like solving the problem that you were talking about, say you wanted to make a, a note on a piece of music, you would typically go to the point in the piece of music where you want to make the note, you would press on the display, the cursor would come to you, and then you'd make that addition using the Braille keyboard and it should stay there. 
So um, there's there's so much more to explore here, but I guess one of the questions I have with a rather finite amount of time available to me is how how close are we to a better system? I mean, how close are we to uh, an affordable screen in which somehow or other usable, workable, not incredibly plodding, slow Braille, but, you know, briskly usable Braille would be available? I think we're closer than, you know, I think, uh, well, there's one device which is very close to coming out. Um, It's made by the American Printing House in conjunction with a a company in Korea and another um, manufacturer. Manufacturer, That device will be in beta testing in schools by the end of next year. It's a different technology to the one we are creating, and it has different, you know, pros and cons. But at least there's something out there that will be in um, use. The uh, I was just listening to a podcast the other day, and the podcast um, presenter kind of pushed the company and said, how much is it going to cost? And they were like, probably $10,000. So we're still not close to the price point where, you know, you can just walk down to the Apple store and buy one of these. Um, but, you know, we have to start somewhere, I guess. And just getting this, there's a whole lot of other things that have to happen to make this work because um, nobody knows really yet how to uh, work with a whole page of tactile braille that's refreshable or a tactile graphic that's refreshable. So things that you take for granted, like scrolling and all of the interaction, little widgets and things that make your life easier when you're using a mouse. We have to kind of come up with those for these new full page braille d- devices. And that work is really only starting now. You know, what's it going to be like? It, I, you know, sometimes I say to people, for blind people, this is the moment uh, of going from like the command line to Windows, and we have to completely rethink how we interact with these things. Mm. Fascinating stuff. Uh, Sheila O'Moran, a professor at the University of Michigan uh, and co-founder of New Haptics. Uh, we're going to take a break. Thank you very much for this conversation. We'll take a break. We have one more area of the world of fingers that we wish to explore. The usual, but special, uh, thanks to Kat Pastor, who's our technical producer. Julia Pastel is the producer of this episode, and I have to say the entire team has kind of weighed in on this one. Senior producer Lily Tyson McPants, well, you heard his essay. He's been doing other stuff behind the scenes. Jennifer LaRue, uh, everybody's kind of uh, involved here on The Finger Show. So we have one last topic we want to get into, and that is, you might have noticed this, dating back to the days of, of uh, of the early earliest Mickey Mouse uh, and lots of other just kind of just archetypal uh, animated cartoon characters and right through the present. Um, pretty typically, they have four fingers or a thumb and three fingers if you want to split hairs. Uh, and so why would that be? Why don't they get the usual compliment? Uh, we're, are, we are going to find out from Carlos Fernandez Puertolas, uh, an animator uh, at DreamWorks. He's the head of animation for the Boss Baby and Trolls franchises, as well as one of the best drone racers in the world. I'm not sure how actually that affects his knowledge of cartoon uh, figures digits, but we'll find out right away. So, Carlos, welcome to our conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So let's start with the the huge question. I mean, is there a specific reason why cartoon characters are so much more likely to have four fingers than the usual five? Yes, money, (laughs) I would say. (laughs) Well, I think it's 
you know, I, I actually wasn't fully sure. So I had to kind of think about it a bit more. And my, my first answer when I was thinking about it was that, well, it's probably just money. Because obviously something like the hands can be really time consuming to animate for, for animators, right? Because we're thinking, you know, when we're moving our hands, it's pretty simple to do it, right? We just don't even have to think about it. But when we're doing it in animation, uh, when it's in CG animation or even on, on hand draw animation, one extra finger is actually quite a bit more work, you know? So uh, so I think what happened is like on some characters where the, 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 the character design and the stylization of the characters work for the characters, they decide, okay, removing one finger doesn't really limit us, doesn't really, we still can perform, we can do everything we want to do, and we can save time having one less finger. Yeah. Right. And and now it's sort of turned into a joke that certain uh, figures can kind of play around with. On, on The Simpsons, only God has five fingers. Everyone else has, has four <laughs> fingers. Uh, Homer has occasionally given people the finger with his index finger because he doesn't have a middle finger. Uh, they kind of play around with that reality. Although I've also read, Carlos, that in the early days, think about Mickey Mouse. Mickey Mouse is kind of all circles, you know? I mean, everything about Mickey Mouse is a circle. So th- there is the theory, I guess, that this hand's kind of had to be circles too and the more little things you have sticking out of them the less that they're circles yeah i think that again like i was mentioning earlier everything has to do probably with the character design right that process is start when the character designers are coming up with the idea of like okay how is this character going to look like and a lot of those ideas are a big part of it right i think if we're designing a movie or a character where the characters are uh, a little more you, you know leaning towards the realism then you will find that putting four fingers right away will will look out of place, you know. So it have a lot to do with yeah character design and how the the creators want to make these characters look like. Yeah. Right. So I mean, boss baby characters have five fingers. I assume it's for that reason. Like if you have four fingers, they really start to look like a cartoon. Uh, if you want them to look less yeah. like a cartoon, you give them five. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's it's at the end, it is a choice, you know, and I think in our case, you know, having five or four fingers, uh, you know, we can still make it happen, especially on, on movies like that are CG, right, 3D animation, like, for example, Boss Baby. The good thing about those movies is that when, we, when we're working on the pre-production of the movie, we're able to create a lot of libraries for our characters, what we call libraries of hand poses, right? So in a way, instead of having to draw every hand every time we have to do a pose, uh, it becomes a lot easier because we create this, this really big uh, library of hands with fist, open fist, pointing, different kind of pointings that help us create those poses really quickly. You know, So that helps us in terms of it doesn't matter as much if we have five or four fingers now. So that really helps. And in case the boss baby, the decision was to, to yeah, have five fingers. And I think on the, on the side of the babies, the interesting part of that is when we were creating all of these hand poses for the babies, since it was a boss baby, we have a section of the library that was uh, baby hand poses, and we have another one that was business poses for the hands. So it was an interesting combination for boss baby. When you say business, you're, you're talking about ex- kind of executive hand gestures. Yes, executive hands. That's it. Like kind of like you know, you know, we we will watch a lot of videos of of conferences of people or, or you know, uh, shareholder conferences where people are talking and doing presentations and kind of grab different ideas from those videos and, and 
put that on our library so we can kind of use them on our on our sods. Yeah. I don't know. George Jetson's boss, I think he only had four fingers. Uh, but of course, George, <laughs> he, all he ever did was go say, Jetson, get in here. Um, <laughs> so uh, we would be remiss since we have somebody from the world of trolls, uh, not to mention trolls. This is a little clip from Trolls 2 World Tour. You're going to hear the voices of Justin Timberlake, Anna Kendrick, and James Corden. Okay, change of plans. We need to get home as fast as we can and get everyone in the bunker. Uh, no. Change of plans. We have to stop Barb from destroying all music. If we don't stop her, who will? Poppy, you said this could be handled with hugs. How are we going to hug our way out of this one? It's okay, Biggie. Really? It's okay to be terrified? When am I going to learn to stay away from the cotton candy? No. As your queen, I promise that I will protect you no matter what. I... Pinky promise. <gasps> Poppy, you know you can't go back on a pinky promise. Never did, never will. All right, so... We should point out for people who haven't seen Trolls movies, Trolls have like really big hands, at least in this franchise, right? Yes, they're really big, you know, and that's part, again, like part of the stylization of the characters was they, they have really, really big heads and really big hands, which in a way is, is a challenge for the animators because, you know, uh, you know, we have to, for example, just to give you an example, we have some great choreographers that help us come up with some of the dances, right, for the movie, because there's a lot of dancing, a lot of singing. So there's a lot of choreographers that, that we'll meet up with and we will record them and they will help us uh, kind of come up with some ideas of what the characters could be doing in terms of dance. So when they do the dances, they're doing all kinds of moves where the hands got over the head and they grab their hands over their heads and they do all of these cool stuff that then we, the animators, have to somehow kind of translate into the troll world because all characters can't even touch their hands over their heads because their heads are huge, right? And it's a similar thing with the hands, right? We have to, uh, they're so big that we always have to kind of limit the amount of motion of the hands because they can actually compete with the face. And, you know, I think uh, when we're animating the characters, we always want to be, most of the time, we want to be looking at the face, right? That kind of it creates a lot of that's where we get a lot of information in terms of acting so sometimes when we were to do choices that the hands were moving too much the audience will kind of their eyes will automatically go to the hands and we don't want that so in a way we were very careful about what kind of hands you start to do with those characters all right. Well, we have to wrap up the show. It's fascinating stuff, though. I do want to say that because I'm a depraved person, the animated thing that I watch the most these days is Rick and Morty. And they definitely have five fingers because they give people the finger all the time. That's like just <laughs> they, no, they could not possibly function with four fingers. Uh, <laughs> Carlos Fernandez, uh, Fernandez uh, Puertolas, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. An animator at DreamWorks, he's the head uh, of animation for the Boss Baby and Trolls franchises, as well as one of the best drone racers in the world. So don't race your drone against Carlos for money, because you will lose. And he might take your pinky. She won't ever get them four digits. She about to lock my phone. Trying to unlock my phone. She about to lock my phone. Trying to unlock my phone. She won't ever get them four digits. What's cracking, baby, other than my code? Just came off the ring up for the road.